Hello everyone, welcome to uh, this week's podcast on cartographic objects, looking specifically at GPS and GIS. Uh, this week for marks the first of the, the objects series um, of discussions slash thought experiments um, for this course. And so from, from now we're going to sort of try and hone in a little bit more on the actual technological forms and the way in which they might intersect some of the broader um, ideas around theories of space and spatiality, bodies, location, etc., cetera, uh, as well as uh, the genealogical kind of underpinnings of some of these uh, these technologies. So um, systems of governance, uh, resistance, uh, different kinds of technological infrastructure. Uh, I'm going to keep today's uh, podcast a little bit shorter than usual, just because I know you're all quite busy. And I think we're now moving to a point where the readings become a little bit easier and a little bit more demonstrative as well. And I think they start to sort of talk about ideas that you're already encountering as you do your labs. And um, I think it's a much more, I suppose, technical kind of way of thinking through the finer details of the intersection between the actual technologies themselves. And again, like I said before, these broader politics. Uh, And so this week, like I said, deals with uh, GPS, so that's Global Positioning Systems, uh, and GIS, which is a Geographic Information System. And I think uh, it might be, I suspect today's podcast is going to be a little bit boring, uh, but not as boring, I think, as actually having to go out and read some of this stuff yourself, uh, because I think the technical literature around this can be really dry. Um, but there are important differences between both of these um, particular systems of representing geographic information and I think they do make a big difference when we start to think about how that works um, politically uh, and culturally etc 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 so GPS and this kind of relates to the um, piece by Amy Propen on uh, GPS is a is stands for global positioning system and GPS is one example of um, what is called GNSS, so GNSS, which is a global navigation satellite system. And these systems are basically large collections of satellites circling the Earth that enable us to uh, figure out where we are. Um, plenty of different, there's not just one GPS system either, so there's not just one GNSS, there's not just one global navigational uh, satellite system. Uh, there are multiple ones. So the GPS is the American version. Uh, Galileo is the European satellite system. Uh, GLONASS is the Russian or the old Soviet system. So you've got these different kinds of systems. So there's a geopolitics as well to uh, who controls these systems, uh, who maintains them, who funds them, etc. And not every country or consortium has their own system, um, but they all then use the data from other systems as well. So, of course, again, this geopolitics kind of appears in the control of this infrastructure. And I think, for me, thinking critically about something like GPS... Um, again, you've got to at once understand how it works, but also understand its history. Uh, and so, just quickly, so you've got these satellite systems, um, and most GPS systems have three, let's say, elements or segments. So you'll have a satellite, or actually you need three satellites in the sky, um, and this is called um, the sort of air or space segment. 
Uh, you'll have what they call a control segment, which is usually some sort of ground-based infrastructure, whether it's like a radio tower or a uh, receiver or an extender, so something that is based on the ground. And then you'll have the user segment. Uh, and so when we've been making our mobile phone apps, we've been asking for GPS location. We're mostly dealing with the user segment. And what's really interesting is that I've said a couple of times in the labs, you need to check um, to make sure you've got Wi-Fi and GPS enabled, and they both plug into different segments. So the GPS plugs into that user segment, whereas Wi-Fi is a ground uh, locating device, so it runs through uh, the internet cable. So that's actually much more of a control segment. It's much more ground-based. It's a ground segment, right? Um, so you kind of have these three elements that are always in interplay. And I think what's really important is when we think about the way in which like GPS works, it has historically less to do with the history of cartography and mapping, I think, than the history of positioning um, and, in, you know, radio waves, etc. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. So GPS isn't really about describing where you are or what it looks like. It's not necessarily about that kind of representation. It's about trying to figure out where you are in relation to other things. And this is what we mean by positioning. Um, and this is why it's different to say mapping. So positioning is just trying to figure out where something is. Um, and of course, positioning then relates to uh, navigation in that you need to know where you are. Um, and knowing where you are is always in relation to knowing where something else is, either a destination um, that you want to go or where you already know something is. And so you need to know which way you're facing. Um, so there's this role of orientation, you know, not just knowing which way where you are, but also which way you're headed, which way you're going. Um, so you need two positions to do that. Um, and then, of course, that then to plugs into navigation. So knowing um, which way you need to go to get to your uh, particular um, destination. And I think it's interesting because, I mean, there are multiple different ways of wayfinding, um, multiple really interesting wayfinding systems that exist outside of uh, these much more structural, technological, and really mathematical ways of understanding where you are. So, um, you know, if you're interested, I would really recommend looking up Polynesian, Polynesian wayfaring um, and the way in which um, uh, people like Hawaiians, Tahitians, uh, Marshall Islanders, uh, etc., uh, would navigate uh, the Pacific using the stars, using the um, sort of warmth or coldness or the strength of the currents in the water, so by feeling the water, uh, and by measuring distances using the relationship between their hands, the horizon and stars. Um, so you can actually measure distances. Uh, and then, of course, from that, knowing where the stars should be and which way north or south is, you can, you can navigate uh, that way. And I think another thing that I find quite interesting about something like um, GPS is that Again, we end up with these cardinal directions when we're talking about two points. We talk about north and south and east and west, and these are not these aren't absolute positions. These are relative. So we can think about the northern and the southern hemisphere as these kinds of absolute um, kind of descriptions. But if we think about something like where I am, I need to go east or west. I need to go left or right. Um, and so it's about this kind of relational relationship between where you are and where you're trying to go. Uh, and I always find it, it's interesting um, 
when I sort of you think about um, there's a, a group of Indigenous Australians in the north of Australia called Yolnu, and um, they don't have what we call egocentric directions. So they don't necessarily, they don't have this kind of concept linguistically of left and right. And left and right is relational to you. Like you're in the centre of your own left and right. And this is why someone, if you're facing someone, their left is not your left and you get these kinds of um, conversations. And I mean, hypothetically, perhaps this kind of um, reinforces a kind of um, individualism or a kind of egocentrism to the way in which we think about and understand our position in the world. Uh, but in Yolnu, they don't have left and right. Um, they always refer to uh, not just where they're going, but, you know, objects, their own bodies, according to a sense of um, cardinal directions. So, you know, their north hand and their south hand. But, of course, if you turn around, then your north hand becomes your south hand, etc. So, you know, my computer is currently sitting west of me. And I think there's a, a kind of interesting question as well here around this this idea of positioning, you know, understanding well, what does it mean to be in the world? You know, there's a difference between having your phone um, triangulate between multiple satellites, um, control segments, and um, determine where you are compared to this idea of you always being embedded in the world. And I think that's something that might be interesting as well to, to think about uh, and look into. Uh, and so I think... I mean, I've talked a little bit about how um, GPS works with the different segments, but in a much more sort of rudimentary way, I think try understanding this kind of history of positioning as the history of radio. So it's not really about drawing lines. It's not even really as much about creating things like longitude and latitude, creating street addresses um, for GPS. We'll get to GIS in, in a second. Um, it's much more, again, like I say, about this constant relationality. And I think to really cement how this might be different to the kinds of thinking um, that you get with um, your new languages or um, you might get with uh, Polynesian uh, wayfinding. Um, I mean, so I've been doing a fair bit of research about the sort of history of positioning in Australia. Uh, and I mean, the Australian continent is quite an interesting example because it moves very quickly. Um, so they're constantly having to update where it is. So you've got this, if you imagine this fixed grid that has all the coordinate systems and what you need to do is positioning is about creating a link between this abstract coordinate system and where the physical object is in space. Uh, and so, you know, we know Australia sits roughly between, you know, two longitude and latitudes uh, on the north and the south and the east and the west. So you kind of have this sense. But of course, the grid doesn't move. The grid is very stable because it's abstract. It's not a material object. It's, it's entirely virtual. Um, the continent, however, does move because we know that the, there's tectonic plates that shift and change. And so the continent is slowly moving northwards towards Indonesia. And so they're constantly having to try and figure out where on earth Australia is on the grid because its grid coordinates keep changing because, the, you know, the, the earth itself is moving. Uh, and so... Again, thinking about GPS as this device or this tool or one of many tools, positioning generally as a kind of intellectual tool to really cement that relationship between physical objects and where they are on the map. And for years and years and years, um, you know, it was impossible to really measure or to, to, to position your measurement or measure your position uh, 
in these broad scale global ways. And so people would kind of estimate based upon the stars, they would estimate um, based upon navigation. Um, and then when Giuliano Marconi, um, the Italian inventor, invented radio, there's this whole new way of really being able to measure distance. And so the basic equation um, to measure distance, um, well, the relationship between speed, time and distance. So um, you know, if you know how fast something goes and how long it takes to get there, then you can measure how far something is away from it in the same way that if you know how far something is and how long it takes to get there, you know how quickly you've travelled. So there's this kind of relationship then between the time it takes to travel, uh, between the distance that's travelled and then how quickly that has travelled. And what you get with radio is this really incredible ability to have a signal that can be sort of sent and received over pretty big distances, um, manageable distances with quite a lot of regularity. So when you travel, when you move, you're not going the same speed the whole time. Like you're stopping and starting and, you know, if you've ever driven a car on a freeway, you know what that's like. You're not just going, you know, 70 miles an hour consistently. You'll go 65, you'll go 75, you'll chop and change. And so, of course, that means that those measurements are always going to be a little bit off. Whereas with something like radio, so radio um, sends sound waves. And it, we know that sound travels, I think it's at like 330 metres a second. Sorry, there's leaf blowers outside. Um, <laughs> I think our gardeners are getting a little bit too uh, enthusiastic because there's nothing else to do because we're all still in lockdown. So they just hang out outside and blow a lot of leaves around. Um, but we know that sound travels, yeah, I think it's about 330 metres per second. Um, and if then you can send a signal from one place and you know that it was sent at 12 midday and then it arrives at 12.05, um, like five seconds past 12 um, somewhere else, then you know it took five seconds to travel there at 330 um, metres a second and so then you would know it's about... Oh, I hate maths. 1650 or something like that. Um, 1650 meters that it's travelled, so one and a half kilometers. So you get this sense of you can figure out how far away something is. And so with radio, that opened up the ability for laboratories, or actually they're usually observatories everywhere, to start sending these signals to each other at agreed times to try and measure how far it was between different places. So what is the distance then between Sydney and Melbourne? What is the distance between Honolulu and San Francisco? What is the distance between all of these different locations? And they would send signals uh, at agreed upon times. Um, and this was particularly happening around the turn of the 19th century. Um, and if, we, if you look at the history of these sort of signals um, in the Pacific I mean, this, the First World War really interfered um, politically with this research because it wasn't considered to be very important uh, and also required collaboration, scientific collaboration, uh, beyond borders. Like, There's no point, again, knowing where Australia is requires you to know where something else kind of outside of Australia is. Um, and, of course, if everything's... Um, in political turmoil, you get this kind of geopolitical problem. Um, and also, a lot of this science is funded by the government as well. But regardless, they sort of developed these systems. They had a whole 
um, Pacific network that involved um, California, Hawaii, Japan, I think Hong Kong, um, and a lot of sort of Pacific islands where they were sending signals to each other and actually trying to position different parts of the Pacific more accurately um, according to where they were on the map. And the idea is, is that if you send a signal that takes three seconds and it's received, so the signal basically gets blasted out, it's like the centre of a circle and it goes straight out like a ripple, right? Um, and what you know then is that there's a certain distance between that signal and where it was received. Now, you don't really know entirely what direction that was received in. You only know how far away it is. And so if you start with the point that, um, and maybe I'll put a video up just to, so you can see it visually. If you make three seconds away from where it was sent into a circle, you get this sort of ring of three seconds away from this particular point. And you know that the place that received it is somewhere on that circle. Now, if they get another signal from somewhere else, um, that's five seconds away, then you get a ring that's five seconds, and that ring will um, intersect in two places with the first three-second circle. So you get these two possibilities of where this is. And so finally, if you get a third one that's maybe 10 seconds away, you'll get a point where all three of those circles cross over. They all intersect. And you know that that is where the place that you're trying to position is. You know that it's three seconds away from here, five seconds away from there, and 10 seconds away from this other place. Um, but of course, you know, you translate it into distance, etc. But you can position that. So you need, and so this is what they mean by triangulation, triangulation, triangle, tri, three, three different positions. Um, but with three different signals, you can figure out where something is. And this was pretty important um, in order to be able to um, position where um, the continent was, how far away uh, different um, objects were. It was really important as well. Um, radio became quite popular in use generally, particularly imperial uh, radio. So the British radio like loved to send stuff. And I think I talked about that um, a little bit with the architecture of radio app uh, as well. Like They had the whole pips and they'll bring everyone into GMT, uh, which is now universal coordinated time. Um, but um, so basically you have all these signals kind of going around being sent everywhere um, but of course there's only so far a radio wave can be sent before it hits buildings it hits mountains or the signal just becomes too difficult to read so you've got this kind of um, limit the decay where the signal becomes decayed or it gets um, stopped like a friction almost around it and so in order to be able to position places, you need to be, you have to be physically in that location. Like you need to have a physical um, receiver in that location uh, to be able to position it, uh, which is all well and good. And so if you look at some of the early uh, maps of um, telecommunications infrastructure in the Pacific, you know, they are all places that are cooperating um, until the Second World War when it all went to hell. Um, but, you know, they all have these physical ground stations. Uh, but, of course, that is really limited. It means that you can position where you are, but in the space of the Second World War, you don't necessarily want to position where you are. You want to position where, you know, your enemy is or try and figure out 
where um, the sort of U-boats are or where different supply chains are. So you're actually not wanting to position territory that you're already in control of and figure out where it is. You're actually wanting to position um, something that you, you don't know where it is. And so you kind of see this shift between the Second World War and eventually the Gulf War um, in trying to find ways of mapping and positioning mobile objects um, to um, basically be able to do not need to have a territorial like um, control of an area in order to be able to position it, to be able to do it remotely. Um, and this coincides with the space race in the 1960s and 70s. So they start sending satellites and sensors and stuff up into the sky to take pictures of the Earth. Uh, and they begin to realise that actually you can send radio signals into uh, the sky. And that's really useful because um, if you've got three satellites and they send you know, you know where one satellite is, you know where the other, and you know where the other, like, you know where all three of them are, like, you know how far away they are from the Earth, and you can then do the triangulation with those satellites. Um, so, and I mean, currently, I think GPS has about 24 satellites, a bit more, because sometimes they break, so they're just sort of floating up there. Um, but, you know, you need, you, with these satellites, you can actually position without needing um, necessarily a ground segment, uh, per se and so it's not coincidental that it kind of buys into the cold war and then by the time the gulf war really begins to tick over uh, in the 90s the first gps systems are basically enacted um and so they coincide precisely um with the first cold with the first gulf war um and were really important. Um, they were military positioning tools to try and figure out where enemy insurgents were, to try and figure out where enemy army bases were. Um, and of course, the issue isn't just knowing where, like what is there, but it's really important that you know precisely where it is. Because if you're going to send planes in to try and bomb something, you don't want them going the wrong direction and getting lost. You, you want to know precisely where these military targets are. And so they launch all of these satellites um, in 93, I think, um, and basically start to preamble this kind of... The, the, the military-industrial relationship um, within GPS. And so GPS, you know, as a radio technology has always been kind of scientific, but as a commercial technology has its roots in the military um, and in government control. So it's always this really contested space. It's always this really, really complicated space and we don't have access um, to those satellites necessarily. Um, other countries who don't have access to them, who don't have their own satellites, have to pay for access to those images. Uh, so it, it's kind of shrouded in this. And of course, GPS increasingly is implicated in things like drone warfare um, or remote warfare through um, unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs, uh, and also um, increasingly they form part of the assemblage of different technologies that uh, they use for driverless cars, which is why I started looking at um, Australian the history of positioning in Australia because they kept having problems with their cars because um, they kept crashing into stuff. Um, 
because even though the position was right um, through GPS, um, they were sort of about a metre off on the grounds. They kept driving into walls and stuff, and they realised that the Australian continent, even though it was positioned in the early 90s, um, in tandem with the um, creation of GPS, and it became commercial in 2000, I think, or 1995. Ah, It was the late 90s. It became open for commercial use. Um, It, uh, of course... The continent's moving fast and so they have to keep basically repositioning the continent because so much relies on GPS and increasingly boats rely on GPS. There's lots of, I mean, if you just look up GPS fails. I mean, I think the US Army is now teaching their sailors how to use sextants and really old kind of navigational tools because they've become so reliant on GPS that when the GPS fails or it breaks, they actually don't know how to navigate um, and they keep crashing into stuff and scuppering boats and it's all kind of funny but kind of horrific at the same time. And so this is really where um, Propen's piece comes in to sort of try and think about some of the critiques and affordances of GPS as a surveillance device because it is that thing that makes that relationship. Positioning is that thing that makes a relationship between a physical object whether it's a continent or someone's body and its position on the grid like where it is um, on the map and so you know the Acme rent-a-car example is a really um, good example of the way in which uh, different um, you know the, the sort of the application of spe- speed time distance um, calculations to figure out how fast people are going, um, to figure out where they're going. So, you know, GPS is a series of different points um, that then is sort of generalised. So it's impossible, like, there's not a continuous line. The signal is sent from your phone up to the satellites, comes back down, point one. And then, however, you can actually um, say how many seconds you want that checked um, in the code for your application. So, maybe 26 seconds later or 10 seconds later or a minute later, it'll send back up for another signal and it'll check again. Um, And then what happens is the app takes these points uh, and uses the timestamps, you know, when were these signals sent and received, um, to then create that into a line. So it generalises that into a path or into a line. Um, And then from that, um, it then can sort of say, well, you're travelling roughly this speed over this time over this distance and um, so it's just a series of points that become aligned it's not like a continuous you know natural linear kind of structure if you're into I don't know Deleuze's lines of flights or whatever um, and so you know on one hand it is this technology like the Acme render card that is super surveilly like it, it is and it's it's usually it's often wrong. I mean, I have done a lot of work with GPS, and it is only. I mean, some devices are accurate to fifty centimeters. Um, some are accurate to three meters. Some are accurate to ten meters. Some are accurate to fifty meters. Like it depends on your accuracy, and that depends on how good your device is. Um, most consumer devices aren't that good. GPS is highly susceptible to things still like buildings. They call it 
the urban canyon problem. Uh, so when I was doing research in Hong Kong, people don't use a GPS in Hong Kong because the um, urban structure is too dense, which means the GPS signal can't get through. Um, so you've got this kind of problem as well. Um, and I wrote a piece recently, I know I keep talking about my research, but I really love GPS. I'm such a sucker for some GPS, um, about blockchain mapping. So rather than triangulating between the um, like the space segments, so the satellites and the control segment on the ground, so the infrastructure and the people, they propose actually a blockchain, um, like Foam is one of the companies and Hyperion is another, um, a sort of a, um, a blockchain uh, contract exchange on the ground for mapping so that if everyone is part of this mapping network that actually, um, you know, you have fixed objects where you know where they are um, and then you have a whole bunch of different roving agents, whether that's driverless cars or people or whatever, um, and that everyone's triangulating between everyone else and constantly, you know, positioning themselves against each other. And I think, you know, interesting, like still, again, this sort of multiple um, problem. I think if you're in class um, in the conversation where Maria was talking about the open positioning system, uh, that was in the um, Brooker Cohen piece. Again, it's the same kind of principle. It's very similar to the um, blockchain problem as well. Um, and it's one way of solving the urban canyon problem, but you know, still relies upon these these mathematically relational ways of understanding space and place. And so I think that's kind of on one hand, you know, you have all these problems. Um, people sort of assume this infall infallibility, um, and it's it's really a certain kind of surveillance that you get with the way in which GPS works. Um, and it, it constantly hooks you into um, different, you know, systems, whether they're satellite systems, um, private systems. And I think Google's planning on launching their own satellite system in the near future as well. Um, so now you're sort of seeing corporations act like governments. Um, but on the other hand, there's been lots of really cool and interesting GPS art and critical GPS use. Um, so Esther Pollack from um, Blast Theory, for instance, um, you know, I think it was Amsterdam Real Time, did really interesting work mapping people's movements to try and counter the, the narrative of a, a place with no people. Uh, Jeremy Woods did GPS art, so, you know, lots of people... Um, even using commercial apps like Strava, when they're running to, like, draw giant pictures of penises using the urban like the shape of the urban city, um, like the urban sort of streets and stuff and running in particular ways to draw pictures. Um, again, pretty funny kind of stuff. Um, but there are these kinds of ways of of drawing for an eye that only a satellite can see. And I mean, a question mark, you know, does this speak back to that, that top-down gaze or does this kind of reified in a way? Um, again, a big question mark. But I think sort of seeing how that kind of GPS works. And I think what's really important as well is that there is also a minor difference. Um, I'm going to move into GIS here as well. Um, I mean, the Earth isn't flat. Um, the Earth is actually round. Um, and that changes the way in which we measure and understand distance, particularly if we're talking about large distances. So how far away things look on a map that is flat um, using a particular kind of projection, like a Mercator projection, is not actually how far things are away from each other. Uh, and so, you know... Often you'll sort of position thinking about like the Pythagorean theorems, the triangulation 
um, you know, you know where two points are, you can find the third point using this kind of triangulation. Um, but actually the way they tend to do it is using the Haversine formulas where um, you have to actually measure on the round. So actually if you imagine that the triangle it looks more like a piece of pie um, and you're trying to measure on this curvy bit. Um, so that's important to keep in mind as well, um, particularly if you're doing any big mapping um, or you're trying to convert your GPS points onto a flat map and this is why things like making sure the projections are right is really useful um, or maybe sometimes if your projections are off depending on how you've done it or what platform you're mapping on I think Mapbox changes them automatically because a lot of web mapping platforms sort of secretly imagine the world as round and you're just seeing a snippet of that round world uh, so it is kind of relational there's a sort of relationship there. If you think about the difference between like Google Earth, um, you know, is this sort of round world and you're just seeing a snapshot of it. Um, Google Maps, yeah, it's a bit complicated. Um, so moving on to GIS. So GIS stands for uh, Geographic Information System and where GPS is about finding where things are in the world um, a GIS, like a, a Geographic Information System, or GI Science, which is Geographic Information Science, is about managing large databases of geographic information. And so it's about qualifying, and by qualifying I mean in the sense of, of classification, of taxonomization, of, of um, ordering uh, these random points, these dots that you might get through a GPS device, and finding ways of analysing the relationship between those points. Uh, and so a, GPS, a GIS rather, uh, is really, like it is a system. Um, it's like an archive in a way, if you, you know, familiar with archival science where everything has a classification. And I think this is, this is why I put the um, Baranesh piece in there about the order of places, because a GIS really does order places uh, and, I mean, that ordering of places is increasingly um, kind of a hegemonic structure about the way in which we imagine place. And we've talked a little bit again about that when we talked about territories. Um, but there are, of course, these, these, you know, very uniquely bespokely coded ways of organising place. And I think... Um, if you look at something like OpenStreetMap, which is an, um, an open mapping system and looking at how they classify places, you know, residential, industrial. Um, I wrote a paper a few years ago on OpenStreetMap trying to classify um, Aboriginal lands uh, and trying to figure out, you know, is it, at what level should it be classified as well? Because not all points and not all boundaries have the same kind of level. So like, a GIS, it, it's based upon this idea of the point, the line, and the polygon. Um, and then it gets a bit more complicated. But let's look at this. So you've got your GPS point, And with two GPS points, you can make a line. So you can draw a line between those two points. Now, if you have three points, then you can actually make a shape, a triangle. Um, so the, hence the point, line, and polygon. And this is the basis of all um, GIS systems. And so... You know, a point might be the centre. So when you look up, you see Berkeley, you get this point in the centre of campus. Um, a line might be the 
I can't I don't know what it's called, the, the road down from the Campanile, down um, through the campus, and a polygon might be the four points that border the campus and turn it into a square, and then the campus becomes a shape, right? Uh, and these are not just ordered on the level of, you know, which category do they fall into, which one is a campus, which one is a street, which one is a, um, a location or, a, a, you know, a particular point, but also in terms of the hierarchy of levels as well. You know, one is bigger than the other. And so if we think about things like states or uh, counties or cities or nations, um, and this is important because it also means, you know, all geographic data is collected at the level of the point, the line, or the polygon. Uh, and so sometimes you'll have a collection of random point data. So, um, you know, you've gone out already for your labs and you've collected, and this is why we did the labs, um, you've collected a bunch of points, well done, and you've named them. Now, if you were to um, basically create a line between them, then you would have a path so there's your line, you know, the, the way that you went. Um, and we sort of abandoned doing the GPS lines just because it's another, uh, it was another app um, and it's another kind of process to uh, put it into the map. And it's not that hard, um, but I think just because it was remote, um, I didn't want to ask too much of you. But then if you actually filled in the line, so you actually used all those points to make a shape, then we could also say something about, um, this as being a kind of space that you inhabit, right? Um, in the same way that if you counted everyone in your block where you live and asked them what their favourite colour was, you'd end up with a bunch of data. Half of them might say red, a quarter of them might say blue, a quarter of them might say green. And then you can generalise the whole blocks without having to point to individual people, individual points, you can then generalise and go, oh, this whole block is a red block. They prefer red. That is the majority colour that people prefer. And this is how things like election data work. And it's kind of stuck in my head because the election's coming. And a lot of election maps are really not great because, I mean, if you look at the difference between, I mean, the whole sort of, Australia's another good example. Like more than half the people in the country live in the cities. But when you see an election map, you'd think it was pretty much run by this minor party that just is basically representative of very small numbers of people who live spread out across really large areas. So there's some electorates that are thousands of kilometres um, across. And you get the same you know, in the US maps where um, there's a visual bias towards the middle of the country and the rural areas because they've got less people but they have more land. And so this is the problem with looking at... Um, these kinds of maps geographically rather than via population. Uh, and so a GIS creates these kinds of hierarchies as well. So it's not just that it's saying these are all the different kinds of categories of places that we can think of. And if you go to Mapbox and you play around with all the different settings, you'll see that. Um, but also it creates a hierarchy where there are main roads and less main roads. It creates a hierarchy where things that happen on, an, on a national level can supersede things that happen on a, um, on a smaller level as well. And so this is sort of about the grain of data. And I think for me, this is one of the really important kind of things is to sort of see that this isn't just something that happens um, theoretically, but actually um, this is embedded 
in the creation of uh, GPS systems, oh, not GPS systems, GIS systems through GI, through the geotags, through KML, um, through GeoJSON as well as an ordering device. You know, what is a feature? What are the what are the the um, what are the features of a feature? You know, there's the geolocation. There might be a description. There might be a name. Um, like it's actually coded into these structures are coded into the way in which we represent places using digital maps. Uh, and really, it's pretty limited how you might do that digitally without that stuff as well. Um, and I think, yeah, again, just thinking a little bit more deeply that it's you know these. These genealogical systems that we described, or that we we talked about, um, you know, the kind of cartographic ways of thinking about bounding and lining and delimiting, the territorial ways of thinking about not just creating borders, but you know, street numbers and grids, um, you know, the coordinate systems. Again, thinking about cartographic kind of stuff, thinking about the visualities like pixels and images, color, thinking about the technologies like radio signals like you know satellite infrastructure and then again the way that these have been resisted like these ideas are all literally embedded in the technology itself and now that you've started using the technology it should be pretty clear exactly how that works but also sometimes for me at least a little bit frustrating that you can't necessarily work outside it Um, I think this is the big the big question here uh, as well, um, and I think, of course, if you have a GIS, so the point of a GIS is that it's not a map either. Neither GPS nor GIS are maps. They are processes or they are archives. So a GPS, like a global positioning system, is a process, a process to find where something is. It is a set of signals that are transmitted between different objects that then enable you to position yourself. A GIS is just a database. It's a database of of information that has geographic attributes whether that's a place name whether that's um, a unique id uh, like you might get in google maps whether that's uh, a coordinate like a geotag sort of you know two coordinate points like it's just a database that has geographic information that's attached and the point of having a database like that is not just so it can sit there and look pretty or sit there and do nothing but that it can be calculated that you have this database that can then be processed again so this isn't like it's not just that this is um a descriptive or a, a problem of descriptive politics of representational politics but it's actually embedded in things like decision making it's embedded in things like navigation so from those databases you know you can figure out where you want to go you can i mean these kinds of big databases um, about voting patterns. We're seeing them time and time again uh, as the election draws near, um, as people calculate and use models to predict. Um, of course, you know, elections are geographical, uh, intensely geographical because they're so um, dependent on how a majority in a polygon might vote. Similarly, um, we're seeing that quite a lot with COVID as well. Um, and increasing, like, you know, the parameters, like the, the classifications, the order of that database really limits what we can then extract from that database. You know, the questions that might be asked um, really limits the kinds of, of calculations that we can make. Um, and so I think, you know, you get these kinds of 
um, ways of measuring beyond just where someone is, but also trying to measure the state of the world as well to calculate it and maintain this whole con- sort of consortium of, of information on like, spatial information on people's lives that can then be used to, to make these generalizations. And I think that's really important too um, that we think about that. We think about how um, the how uh, how these sort of systems work. And I think um, uh, Sashin was talking about Snap Map. Snap map, the map of Snapchat that shows all the heat maps and stuff. And this is like, you know, the data that you get from Snapchat with the geotag is a geographic information system, it is a GIS. And what that application does is it takes that information and presents it geographically. So rather than sorting it via user or rather than sorting it via um, subject or tag, it, it sorts it via the geographic location and presents it on a map so that, you know, all the snaps that were sort of sent or within a certain location are represented. So it's also about sort of, you know, you've got five or six different attributes and you choose which one you want to sort it by. Um, and what we've been doing in our, in our, our labs is actually sorting by the particular uh, code, um, the, ge- the geography of it. So we've been representing it geographically on the map where the major sorting device is its coordinate, like its its position, um, to put it on the map. Now, if you want to represent it otherwise, you could. You could sort it via your pictures as a photo gallery. You could do it via name and description. Like, And if you had, like, a lot of data, you could, you know, you might sort of say, okay, well, and it's the difference, I think, when you go to Google Maps and you can sort of say, well, I want a restaurant. And, and you'll see the restaurants represented geographically on the map, but you will also see a list of the different restaurants as well and how far they are away from you. It's the same database. It's just presenting that information differently. One is, you know, presenting it geographically and the other is actually just sort of highlighting the, the names of all the different restaurants rather than just having pins. Okay? So these are the two differences. I know I've talked a lot about some of the really boring <laughs> kind of technical stuff, but, I mean, it is interesting in some ways, and I think it's really important to understand kind of what's happening here as we launch. Like, we've, we've done all these big, I suppose, ethereal almost critiques of what's happening and how these systems work, and now we're really digging into it and going, actually, it's not like these are just general critiques of the system, but actually this is literally how it works. This is literally when we get into it how it is structured as well. Um, I think that's really important um, when you start to think about your own projects as well, to think about, well, how is it built? Um, and I mean, you know, your interventions can happen across content, across the technology, across, you know, all these different ways. But I think, again, not just making these analyses without really understanding how it works. I think it's also interesting um, when you do your labs, if you're on the iPhone and you actually have to specify the location permissions as well, like all the categories of permission that you can ask for, location when using, location always, location when in use and always, location like there's all these different categories um, that are so embedded in the different kinds of systems as well um, in terms of, you know, how we think about it. So I think, anyway, go and have fun um, playing around with your labs. Um, I'll be back next week to talk a little bit more about sensors. So I talked a bit about radio and GPS today. I talked quite a lot about it. Um, but tomorrow I'll talk a bit more about LIDAR and some of the ways in which that's being used, not for positioning, but for 
description um, and talk maybe a bit more about imaging and body sensors, heat sensors and stuff as well. No, wait, is next week wearables? Oh, I think next week is wearables. <gasps> We're going to talk about peripherals. Oh, Apple Watches. Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. Um, thank you very much for listening and I will see you next week.